A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I mean, I don't understand why it's not so easy to flip that argument about Donald Trump on Twitter. Donald Trump belongs on Twitter because he's so powerful. Why isn't it just as easy to say Donald Trump doesn't need Twitter because he's so powerful? This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. We are back from Washington, D.C., and excited to be sitting down together for today's episode. We had the most amazing weekend. Thank you to everyone who turned out for the show. We have one stop left on the Pantsuit Politics Nuance Nation tour. We're going to be in Dallas. We're so excited. If you do not have your tickets yet, get your tickets to Dallas. It's going to be the, the big finale, and I'm getting very excited. We have so much news to cover today, and so we're going to dive right into that in our main segment. We're going to talk about what the rules are with respect to Facebook and Twitter as we come into an election year, and I have a feeling that will be a characteristically wide-ranging conversation for us. And we will end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. 
starting across the pond. Sarah, are you shocked that Boris didn't just roll in with his new deal and get it rubber stamped by Parliament? Boris, you've lost the trust here, buddy. Like, the relationship is damaged. And I think this is why usually in this scenario, somebody would say, you know what, I'm not going to be prime minister anymore and or call a snap election, which... In fairness, you've tried to do. But yeah, it's it's this is a broken relationship, which is a shame because they got a deal with the EU. But then Parliament met for the first time on Saturday in like 37 years and said, cool, we still want an extension. So now. We need one of those BBC flowcharts, which we'll link to a really good one in the show notes because we have so many options. So we can we can see if the EU is going to approve this delay. We can see if Parliament, which he was going to try to get them to vote on the New Deal today as we are recording Monday. And Parliament was like, no, because we've already talked about that. <laughs> so now they could approve the deal. They could amend the deal. It's just there's a there's still so many ways this could play out. We also have a developing situation in the Middle East. So if you remember to last week, president said, we're going to take our troops out of Syria. And nobody really knew what that meant because he kind of sprung it on his whole government. And we learned from the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, over the weekend that those soldiers who were in Syria are now going to go to Western Iraq. They're not bringing them home. They're not coming home. They're just moving. And he did not rule out those forces conducting missions in both Iraq and Syria, but says we'll be working those details out over time. We also sent the vice president and the secretary of state over to Turkey, and they put together what they called a ceasefire. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it needs to be like a like a court case. The alleged ceasefire like that i feel like it needs air quotes it needs something to to signal that this was basically turkey got everything they wanted they still were fighting and it was only five days yeah it's hard to call something a ceasefire when the fire actually hasn't ceased mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and pence has been very roundly criticized mike pompeo sort of distanced himself from taking the lead here mike pence's trip was put together in 48 hours it was only 35 hours door to door. And he left without imposing any sanctions on Turkey, giving Turkey basically everything it wanted, including just increasing the stature of Turkey's president Erdogan within his own country. And so the Bipartisan criticism of the Trump administration on this issue continues, and criticism is probably a soft word for what's going on. We even had an op-ed in the Washington Post from Senator McConnell. And while he never used Trump's name, he said that the current policy is a big mistake. And he talked about these three lessons he's learned since 9-11 about specifically combating ISIS. And I thought these three lessons were interesting and worth spending a second on. So the first one is that this threat is real. And he said, you know, as much as we'd like to wish away the threat of terror actually coming to American shores, that is not possible. And it is there. And if we are not actively combating it, it will succeed. 
And then he said, there isn't any substitute for American leadership in the world. He wrote, if we Americans care at all about the post-World War II international system that has sustained an unprecedented era of peace, prosperity, and technological development— We must recognize that we are its indispensable nation. We built this system, we sustained it, and we have benefited from it most of all. I mean, hear, hear. Yeah. I don't disagree with a single word of that. And then thirdly, he said, America is not fighting alone. In recent years, the campaigns against the Islamic State and the Taliban in Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan have been waged primarily by local forces. The United States has mainly contributed limited, specialized capabilities that enable our local partners to succeed. Ironically, Syria has been a model for this increasingly successful approach. And he said, Mm. we're going to continue to hear from extremes on both left and right about endless war. But he said, you know, the fact is war doesn't just end. It has to be won. And this has been a strategy that's been pretty successful. Now, I don't think that there's a whole lot of winning to go around in most of these situations. So that's where I departed from him a bit. But I really think those three pillars are pretty significant and three pillars that I think most Americans would agree with. And so it was nice to see something moderately helpful from Mitch McConnell. The strong criticism from usually dependable allies like Mitch McConnell, like Senator Lindsey Graham, I think were really impactful. You have Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and a congressional delegation of Democrats visiting Jordan and also continuing to criticize this withdrawal of troops. And then you have sort of this this fight on many fronts with regards to the administration playing out in other but other areas, but I think they're related. So you also have the Trump administration coming out on Friday and saying that they are going to host the G7 summit at the Trump Corporation's Doral retreat in Florida. So while they're trying to either defend or are openly criticizing this decision in Syria, the president decides to give a government contract to his own property. There was a really great moment where the chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who, who, who had a tough couple days because he came out to do a press conference about this decision and then basically admitted that there had been quid pro quo. With regards to Ukraine. And he even said the president still considers himself to be in the hospitality business. Well, fun fact, you're not, friend. So they're getting this Syria decision. They're getting Mick Mulvaney in the press conference basically admitting to quid pro quo, which they've been trying to say no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. Then you get this Doral decision. And even we we keep asking, where's the line? How far do they have to be pushed? And I think we're getting so close to it because the reporting on this decision is that the House Republicans pushed back so far and or congressional Republicans and said, there is a limit to how much we can defend you about that. Then the president reversed the decision and decided not to host the G7 there. I think this is another time we think very hard about how, when, and why to quote the president. But I think this is another time where hearing his tweets is important, especially as you're conversing 
with people in your life who might see this differently than you do. So here's what Trump said on Twitter late Saturday. I thought I was doing something very good for our country by using Trump National Doral in Miami for hosting the G7 leaders. It is big, grand, on hundreds Mm -hmm. of acres, next to all caps Miami International Airport, has tremendous ballrooms and meeting rooms, and each delegation would have its own 50 to 70 unit building, would set up better than other alternatives. I announced that I would be willing to do it at no profit or, if legally permissible, at zero cost to the U.S. But as usual, the hostile media and their Democrat partners went crazy. Therefore, based on both media and Democrat crazed and irrational hostility, crazed and irrational hostility is capitalized, we will no longer consider Trump National Doral Miami as the host site for the G7 in 2020. We will begin the search for another site, including the possibility of Camp David immediately Thank you. And point. I quote that because I think there are people who will say, well, he was going to basically donate this property. Don't we want him to do that? And this connects back to what Mick Mulvaney said about the president still considering himself to be in the hospitality business, which he is. He is still in the hospitality mm-hmm. business because he didn't put any distance between himself and that business when he became the president. And this is what happens when we have a business leader who is still a businessman in the presidency. Mm -hmm. There is a remarkable piece of journalism from Anita Kumar in Politico that you just have to read. We'll put the link in the show notes. But it talks about how he doesn't know where that line is himself. And he constantly Mm -hmm. talks about his properties to the point where people in his own administration worry that this is influencing foreign policy. She said the remarks are permeating every membrane of his presidency so much that they've left aides and allies mastering verbal jujitsu to defend his unprecedented approach to fusing personal business interests with his position in high office. And she gives so many examples of conversations, both in public and in private, where he really believes that his properties are central to his presidency and central to the way the United States interacts with other world leaders. And this is an enormous problem. It feels like what we are seeing is, you know, what we talked about and warned about and worried about when he was first elected. When it was a campaign and It was him. It was just him, right? And he could say and really do whatever he wanted because especially when it comes to presidential campaigns, so much of it is ruled by norms as opposed to laws. We worried that this would happen, right? That he would become president and he would follow his own instincts as he did during the campaign with 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 no regard or awareness or knowledge of the laws in place or systems in place that we have. And, you know, it's it's I just feel like it's all coming true. Like you're seeing the limits of our systems, I think, have held. But you are seeing the strain. I think you're particularly seeing the strain on the party system. Right. You're seeing the strain of. Congressional Republicans being forced to go out there and do that jujitsu too. It's one thing when you're Donald Trump and you can do that 
and you're the candidate and you can just tweet and do the jujitsu on Morning Joe yourself, right? But it's a totally different thing when you're asking members of the administration, members of Congress to go out there and basically keep up with you. Like, I'm not sure if it's a matter of we have grave ethical, ethical concerns about what you're asking us to say or if it's just... Dude, we can't keep up. Like you you shift and change so much like we can't follow in your stead. There's absolutely a fatigue that's coming across. I think even from mm-hmm. many really ardent Trump supporters, people are just exhausted because it's one thing after another. And perhaps some people blame media reporting or Democrats for that, but it it's still tiring. Part of the appeal of Donald Trump, at least at the beginning, I think he presents what he says as though it's all common sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The decision to award a contract to your own business as the president that involves global leaders and the press and security staying at one of your properties, this is common sense. Yep. Oftentimes, I think the word norms gets dismissed as some kind of priority of elites. No, this is common sense. Mm-hmm. We we don't self-deal in this way. And it goes, this is just a, you know, a window into what's been going on behind the scenes. Bob Menendez, the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, sent a letter to Trump last week saying 22 foreign governments have had representatives spending money at Trump properties, and he wants to know more about that. A government watchdog group puts that number higher, 111 officials from 57 foreign countries. Saudi Arabia pops up in this reporting all the time. Turkey pops up in this reporting. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult not to see a connection. And I think that we just need to keep this on our radar as part of the corruption that's playing out in front of us in my view, just undeniable at this point. But at least they reversed this decision. Well, and so now you have that. And because we're in the middle of impeachment, that is always relevant. You know, there was talk about adding violation of the emoluments clause as an article of impeachment. I think that the decision in Syria plays into people about how they feel about impeachment, particularly when you have first congressional Republican Frank Rooney from Florida saying, I don't know, I, I need to hear more. I'm, I'm supportive of the impeachment inquiry. You have, again, that disastrous Mick Mulvaney press conference. You have Rudy Giuliani under investigation for possible violations of foreign lobbying laws. So it's just, it just, it adds up. I don't even know. I mean, it just adds up. And I think it all becomes part of the same narrative. It all becomes part of the the story that's being told that you should no longer be in this office because you are ill-suited for it. If you didn't catch reporting on that Mulvaney press conference, he just blurted out that, yes, we withheld aid from Ukraine in order to investigate corruption in the form of did Ukraine contribute to election interference in 2016. And he said these words, get over it. We do this in foreign policy all the time. Politics inform foreign policy. Elections have consequences. And it was kind of stunning because he just said out loud, 
what everyone knew, but he's he said it, you know, and it it felt like maybe the strategy was, yeah, of, of course we did this. I'm I'm sort of struggling with the use of quid pro quo constantly because I feel like that communicates that that's a requirement here. It's not. Quid pro quo mm-hmm. just means this for that, just that there was a, an exchange. And Congress does not have to prove a direct exchange in order to impeach this president for his conduct in connection with Ukraine. And so I just want to be careful about using that language. But Mick Mulvaney did tell us, yes, this is what was on our mind when we withheld that aid. Then he immediately tried to walk it back and say, that's not what I meant. The press is putting words in my mouth, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know if it was the strategy of if we had we admit we did something illegal, then people will wonder if it's really that bad if we're openly admitting it because he tried to walk it back so quickly. To your point about the pylon, you have a very coherent description of what happened with respect to Ukraine announced by Mick Mulvaney and confirmed by multiple State Department officials who are testifying in front of Congress and testifying in closed hearings. So they don't know what the other people are saying. They're all just walking in and saying what they have to say. And I think that adds a layer of credibility to that testimony, it's not being done in open hearings where it's just a circus. You know, I think the the private investigative step here actually is is very smart and preserves some integrity around this process. Mm-hmm. Then you have Rudy Giuliani under investigation by federal prosecutors for breaking possibly foreign lobbying laws. It's hard for me to see how they don't make a case out, given everything that we know at this point. You have multiple administration officials, including Rick Perry, refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas. Meanwhile, congressional committees are already in court fighting for underlying documents related to the Mueller investigation. It's just the volume, you know, is it's the weight of this has to break at some point. Well, and here, can I just go back to that Mick Mulvaney press conference really quickly? When he says, of course, politics influences foreign policy, elections have consequences. The foreign policy of the Obama administration is not going to be the foreign policy of the Trump administration. Yes, that's true. That is true. Presidents take very different political approaches to foreign policy. But what we're talking about isn't politics. It's personal. It's not about the politics of the United States or the priorities of national security and how you would define them differently. It's about personal grudges. It's about, listen, Richard Nixon the most paranoid, grudge-holding politician on planet Earth wasn't in China trying to get back at the Democrats. Like, he even knew where the line was, in theory. Like, I just, surely you can see the difference between I want to pursue my personal grudges and my personal conspiracy theories and the differing political priorities of administrations and their approaches to foreign policy. It's also kind of true because we talked a lot when 
Hillary Clinton was running for president about how there probably wouldn't be a lot of daylight between how a Hillary Clinton and just a garden variety Republican might handle foreign Mm -hmm. policy. And that's good because our approach to the world shouldn't take a hard turn every four or eight years. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be just upending our military every time we elect a new political party's representative in the White House. I think it's true that politics, yes, in a sense of that word that's so expansive it's practically meaningless, influence everything. But partisanship really shouldn't influence foreign policy to such a significant degree that we would need a whole new set of State Department officials as ambassadors. In the Mm -hmm. way that Mick Mulvaney is talking about, I I think that's an unfair characterization. I think that's a very generous description of Mick Mulvaney and his press conference. (laughs) All right. So speaking of people who said some strong words and got themselves in trouble, Hillary Clinton went on campaign headquarters, David Plouffe, the former Barack Obama campaign manager's new podcast, and said that she had concerns that Russia was grooming one of the Democratic presidential candidates as a third-party candidate. She did not use names, but she did say her, so it's limited. And Twitter immediately guessed correctly that she was talking about Tulsi Gabbard. And there were some very, very strong words on both sides. We woke up on Saturday morning to Tulsi. I'm with Tulsi trending in like kind of a weird bot-driven way. And it has led to, I think, some very interesting conversations about third-party candidates, about Democratic Party politics, about foreign intervention in our election. What I think one of the most sort of interesting distinctions that comes out from this The interesting distinction is, you know, Hillary Clinton was not saying Tulsi Gabbard is committing treason. She was saying Russia is grooming this person. And like, what is the responsibility of a candidate or a campaign? Like this happened to Bernie, too, right? Like, so they saw Russian bots really pushing Bernie's campaign and they came out and said, we saw it. We don't really I mean, we can't. We don't know what to do about it. We're not supportive of it, obviously. And it's just it's it's a really interesting question, I think. What happens if you do see foreign bots or foreign social media pages pushing a particular candidate? I don't know. I just it's very intense and very complicated. I don't know what to say about Tulsi Gabbard. I find her compelling in the sense that here we have a woman of color, a person who is Hindu, a person who has served in our military and continues to serve, and who obviously has to be influenced by the way in which Hawaii became part of the United States in terms of how she views American foreign policy in the world. So when I take the conversations that she has about foreign policy in the abstract, I really hear her. When we apply those conversations specifically, I find it really problematic. And I think that's Mm -hmm. 
that's worth talking about because in 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 a way that makes her point that it is deeply embedded in the American psyche that we have a certain standing in the world and that, that we should reconsider it. Now, I, I think, and I don't say these words very often, I think I'm with Mitch McConnell on this, even when we get hmm. to the the end of the day about kind of where, what America's obligations are in the world, going back to that op-ed. I, I do think America has some obligation to police the world. Sorry. I, I think that's the way we stay safest. But I can hear her and engage in a really like good faith discussion about her policies So I understand both where she's coming from when she talks about things like having met with Bashar al-Assad, that she'll meet with anybody if it keeps anyone safer. Like, I can can listen to all that and not have a problem. I can even hear surprise a bunch of men from strange corners of the Internet are gravitating toward this woman who is beautiful and also tends to call everyone out. Okay, like I I can understand that that can be happening around her and not be her fault. What I struggle with is her response to all of that. Mm -hmm. Today on Twitter, she posted a clip of herself talking to Tucker Carlson. And what she posted with that clip was, if you're sick of the new McCarthyism and warmongering by Hillary and her cohorts, then join our campaign. Okay. That feels weird to me. Hmm. And I do think that if you see that you're getting a lot of shout outs on Russian television and you see that you're getting a lot of weird endorsements from white supremacists, it would be helpful to not use for terms like the new McCarthyism to describe what's going on and to say pretty clearly where you are and what you stand for, and to not try to take a PR run at going to battle with Hillary Clinton. So I just, I think this whole situation is so odd. I don't know why Hillary Clinton has been as kind of unleashed as she has been. That's her business. I'm not going to tell Hillary Clinton what to do. I do think it was a big gift to Tulsi Gabbard in some ways to kind of Mm -hmm. elevate her profile through this podcast interview because Tulsi Gabbard's polling does not suggest that she's anywhere close to being the party's nominee. And I would have kind of dismissed a lot of this going on around Tulsi Gabbard as things just happening that she is not in control of, but her response to it has really bothered me. You know, I I have and continue to have this struggle with Bernie. So there's two parts of this to me. One is If you hate the Democratic Party so much, why are you running for the nomination? Let me just add some nuance to that. And I see in her candidacy and in Bernie's candidacy, the Democratic Party struggling under the weight of all that we're supposed to contain in our tent because the Republican coalition continues to shrink. You know, it's just it's too much. It's not that her criticisms are unfair. It's not that Bernie's criticisms are unfair. Um, It's not that it's wrong to hold that particular political orientation. It's just that it's too much to ask for one party to hold everybody from, you know, Tulsi Gabbard to AOC. Like, and I don't really know the solution to that. 
except for I think this this instead of the orientation to this discussion or disagreement or whatever you want to call it between Tulsi and Hillary being, you know, one person's enemy, one person's not, you know, this very like conflict driven orientation. I do wish there was a conversation about like, it's not that Tulsi Gabbard is a bad person or a bad politician or her opinions are wrong. It's just that it's a lot to ask the Democratic Party to hold that entire spectrum. And I think we're just struggling under the weight of that right now. I'm going to criticize her a little bit more specifically, though, and say that in an era of disinformation, I do think the way she's responding to this is careless. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of kind of what any party can hold, Aditi sent us a couple of tweets that she wanted to get our reaction to concerning Andrew Yang. And I know many of you are interested in Andrew Yang. And these tweets are from Bob Seska, who said, Yang, Tulsi, Williamson, all represent aspects of Trumpism. It's a virus. Don't allow it to spread Democrats. And when someone said, why is Yang in that group? He responded, CEO, political hobbyist with zero experience in government, legislating or foreign policy, who's only in this because Trump's lack of experience paved the way. Just because he has ideas people like doesn't qualify him for the White House. It qualifies him for a blog or podcast. And so Aditi wanted to know what we thought about that. Here's my perspective. I do not think that Donald Trump is anything approximating a fair representation of what leaders from a variety of backgrounds could bring to the White House. And I think what qualifies a person for the White House is so much in the eye of individual voters and should be, and that it depends so much on what's going on in the world at the time we have an election. And what's going on at the time we have the election is usually not what's going on at the time the person needs to govern. And so in a way, the entire discussion about qualification and experience is always going to be necessarily flawed. I think it is reckless to compare Andrew Yang to Donald Trump. Because I think Andrew Yang has serious ideas. I think anybody with serious ideas who wants to run for president is welcome to do that. And that's part of what makes America, America. And people can evaluate on their own whether someone like an Andrew Yang who doesn't have government experience is enough of a student of civics and connected enough and humble enough to surround himself with the team he would need to make up for that lack of experience. That's something I think voters should evaluate. But I'm not going to say that Andrew Yang is is a symptom of Trumpism. I think that's a bridge too far. There have always been candidates like Andrew Yang in the in the the spectrum of experience of the sort of Andrew Yang Donald Trump. Right. I think there have always been candidates who might not have gotten as much attention, certainly weren't elected. I agree that Donald Trump is one of the least experienced individuals to ever hold the presidency. But I think that, you know, they didn't invent it. It's been around for a long time. And, you know, we don't discard one sort of universe of experience because it turns out badly forever, you know. Richard Nixon was a bad president, but we didn't decide that anybody who's served as a vice president or has served in the United States House of Representatives 
is therefore a terrible person to elect as president. I don't know. I just I think it's I think it's just sort of deliberately ignoring the the broader spectrum of experiences represented here. And just it's it's sort of like a straw man, like I'm going to set this up to knock it down, but it's not really reflective of anything. I think the thing that it's probably most reflective of is how surprisingly well Andrew Yang is doing, how surprisingly Mm -hmm. strong his support is, how frustrating that is for people who support candidates who think that it's their turn to have this nomination. And I don't mean to sound like I hate the parties when I say that. I don't. I think it's okay to have people who've been working their entire careers to get somewhere. Um, I don't I don't discount that ambition either. But I don't I just don't think that we should be connecting Trump to every person forever who seeks the 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 opportunity to run for the presidency because they don't have traditional political experience. One more thing about 2020 before we move on today. We received some tweets from LL Gill about how we did not enjoy Senator Harris's exchange with Senator Warren about kicking Trump off of Twitter. And that's going to become really relevant to where we're going in our main segment. But she pointed out that that exchange probably played differently in communities of color and sent a a thoughtful article Mm. about that. And the gist is that Senator Harris is viewing this as part of a larger pattern of the president using Twitter to intimidate and incite violence against people of color. The article specifically made note of Representative Cummings. And the president's language on Twitter about him. We've seen this over and over with members of the media, too. Don Lemon is one. I mean, lots of people of color. The president has used Twitter in a very hostile and dangerous way. Ilhan Omar, you know, the list is endless. And so in that respect, if you view this not as just about kind of those whistleblower tweets, but as part of a pattern of him using Twitter in in a fairly violent way that impacts people of color more than white people, I think that's a point extremely well made and well taken in terms of what Senator Harris is talking about. Beth, who are you going to compliment this week? I hope that you've seen the article, everyone listening, about Keenan Lowe, who is a football track coach and security guard for Park Rose High School. Earlier in May, a student came into Park Rose High School with a loaded shotgun. And as we've gotten more information, we've come to understand that student appears to have brought the gun in to kill himself, but not to hurt anyone else. But this coach was able to disarm the student. It was first reported that he tackled him, but it sounds like they had a conversation. He was able to take the gun from the student, and he embraced that student and was comforting others, just kind of worked through this as a crisis situation instead of a shootout. And I thought that what he did was so beautiful. His quotes to the media have have been talking about how kids sometimes don't know what they're doing. And you have to be able to see it through their eyes. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that every single shooting in a school can be ha- handled the way that he handled this. But for him to see that student's humanity and that student's openness to stepping back from what the student was about to do, I just think is remarkable and really worthy of praise and celebration. Well, I want to compliment the big step for womankind. We had our all Woman Spacewalk with Christina Cook and Jessica Meir. It was so 
amazing to see. So exciting to have everybody. I feel like everybody was excited. Everybody was participating and it was a great milestone and it was just really, really fun and important to see happen. Next up, we are going to talk about social media and elections and what the rules are these days. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. A 
over the last few weeks, there has been lots of conversation, lots of public speeches. We all saw Mark Zuckerberg all over the news at Georgetown last week. Lots of policy shifts and changes with regards to political ads on Facebook and Twitter. You saw Elizabeth Warren deliberately post a false and misleading ad to basically bait Facebook into this conversation. You saw the Trump campaign called out for false and misleading ads about Joe Biden. And then you have Facebook and Twitter finally coming out and spelling out their policies with regards to these political ads. And all of this, we believe, is a really big and important part of a bigger conversation with regards to the role social media plays in our elections and our society and with regards to free speech. So here's what we've learned from Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, politicians can make just about any claim they want to in ads or in posts. They are allowed to repeat verbatim a false claim that has already been labeled elsewhere as false. They can misstate their own record or that of an opponent. Here's what they cannot do. They can't misstate details about the voting process. So you are not allowed to tell us a lie about when an election is taking place or the rules or how to vote in that election. The ads cannot include profanity. They cannot embed social media posts that have been flagged by a fact checker. They can quote them verbatim, but they can't embed them. They are not held to standards on factual matters, but they have to adhere to other community standards, such as those on hate speech. And so a regular user basically has a higher obligation to be truthful on Facebook than our politicians do. On Twitter, there is a defined class of world leader users who are or representing a government or elected official running for public office or being considered for a government position have more than 100,000 followers and are verified. And those world leaders are supposed to follow the same standards as everyone else, no threats of violence, no promotion of terrorism, no targeted harassment. But if politicians break those rules, Twitter can leave those posts up because they think the comments are newsworthy. It says that they have the right to limit the promotion of those tweets. They could make it where we can't retweet or reply to or like those tweets. But Twitter's never, ever done that. It just reserves the right to do it. And so basically, both platforms have said, if you're someone in a position of power related to politics, you can just kind of do what you want on our platforms. So the outlier is Google on YouTube that says its policies are not based on the speaker or what type of speaker they are, but at the content. And everyone that uploads a video, this is a quote from Google, everyone that uploads videos on YouTube is subject to our policies, including politicians. So to me, what they're doing here is trying to perpetuate the idea that they are platforms, not content producers. So they're not journalists in charge of checking the facts. They're just the printers putting out the newspaper. To me, that's what these policies speak to, which I think is a 
interesting hill that they're willing to die on, considering the impact of 2016, the blowback from 2016, the increasing distrust and willingness to regulate the social media, these social media platforms on both sides of the aisle, to continue to double down and say, sure, you can you can publish your political lies on our platforms because we're just we're just trying to remove the gatekeeping. We're just trying to democratize information over here. We are not journalists, so we're not going to check the facts. I think it is right to remove the distinction between advertising and regular old posts because I'm not sure that anything put on social media at this point materially differs from advertising. I think pretty much everything all of us put out there is in some way intended to influence or to at least speak to a brand, even if that brand is just who I am as a human being, as gross as it is to think of it in those terms. I think that's where we are with social media, that that there's not this meaningful distinction between what is actually an ad and what is a post, other than whether you paid for it to reach more people or not. So that part of this makes sense to me. But I agree with you, Sarah, that acting like there is no role here other than just to basically create a room that people can fill up with whatever they want is disingenuous and in the long term is going to be the end of these platforms because this situation is so unsustainable. The way that you're just guaranteed now to see such garbage on these platforms from nameless, faceless, or or mocked up fake accounts. I mean, I don't want to be in the room anymore. And I think more Americans mm-hmm. are going to start to feel that way as we see as we see publicly that we're not holding anyone to any standards on what they say in the room. And here's a, a an important, I think, side motivation that's coming into play with regards to Facebook. I think Facebook in particular is trying to um, push back and is, in my opinion, overly concerned about accusations of liberal bias on its platform. And so, you know, they have hired all these Republican operatives. They're letting the Daily Caller be a fact checker on Facebook, despite the fact that the Daily Caller often publishes inaccurate information. You have Mark Zuckerberg inviting the right-wing pundits to his home to, to, to discuss partnerships and free speech. And they're, they're just so concerned with seeming biased towards conservatives that they're perpetuating policies that are harmful to our democracy, that are harmful to their platform, to the future of their platform, to their users. I, I think that that, but I think they're just blinded to the idea that we don't want to seem biased, so we need to to weight the scales in favor of the policies that many of these sort of conservative party players want. If you want to learn more about this, I got a lot of this information from the excellent reporting of Judd Legume at Popular Information. He's been doing a lot of stuff on this, on the Facebook policies. He's been finding the false and misleading ads that the Trump campaign has been publishing Totally. We'll put the link in the show notes. I totally encourage you to check that out. I have trouble believing that Mark Zuckerberg is as worried about seeming biased as he is about keeping the revenue flowing Mm -hmm. when the Republican Party, Mm -hmm. in a way that totally eclipses the Democratic Party, is using Facebook 
to push out millions of dollars of ads every month. But rest easy, Mark Zuckerberg. If it works, they're going to keep doing it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like whether they think it's a biased platform or not, they're still going to give you the money if it works. The New York Times made a lot of people angry with its article about how the Trump campaign is spending so much money in advance of the election on Facebook ads and are Democrats behind. I think the more interesting point of that article came at the end, which they were talking about how what works on Facebook are things that make you mad. That's what works. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. you want it to get interacted with and interaction is the key to getting more eyeballs on it, then it has got to be really provocative and and in a way that leads you to anger or fear, right? And it talked about how in comparison to the way the Trump campaign understands that, Democrats put up glamour shots. Here is an inspiring photograph of our candidate talking about things that we think are important. And that content does not get shared on social media. Just doesn't. And so to me, looking at it through that lens helps me understand what the motivations of Facebook and Twitter are as they promote these policies. Because they, I think, are concerned first and foremost with impressions not with the quality of the information being served up for those impressions. And this really takes me back to Andrew Yang in that last debate and having a much broader conversation about the fact that we are the product for these companies. And we are a product that is increasingly being served up to buyers who we don't know. I'm kind of, I'm ready to rethink all of this. You know, I'm ready to have Facebook disappear unless I sign up again with some personally verified information and a picture of me that matches my issued IDs and a credit card number to charge me monthly for the service. Because at this point, I just think we are, I just think we're sitting ducks for these campaigns that are coming in so many directions from domestic and foreign adversaries. I think one of the best writers and thinkers about this is Andrew Morantz at The New Yorker. He has a new book out called Antisocial Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. And he's a really great article that I'm going to put in the show notes called The Dark Side of the Techno-Utopianism. This isn't new. The idea that we are going to unshackle information and knowledge and we're going to remove the gatekeepers and it's going to make everything awesome and there will be no downsides. I mean, that is one of the common sort of ways of thinking about new technology all the way back to the printing press. You know, even historians, he has this great moment where he talks about historians talking about the printing press and how it allowed Martin Luther to Um, really just fundamentally reorganize religion and also allowed Martin Luther to publish and disseminate insanely anti-Semitic, like calling on the extermination of Jews information and tracts and knowledge and probably gave, you know, just leapt forward the development of this type of ideology in Europe that led us to the Holocaust. So... It's not all good, guys. Like, and when are we going to learn that the importance 
of government and regulation when something like this floods our system to to balance the influx of yeah even knowledge and capacity because it's it can also be exploited and we need that every time honestly i don't think it's just the internet i think there are so many conversations happening right now about sort of corporate roles and corporate responsibility versus the importance of government. You know, today, as we're recording, there was a big settlement between two Ohio counties and pharmaceutical distributors. When it was going to trial, the pharmaceutical distributors were basically arguing like, you can't be mad at us. It was the government's job to watch out for this. And we were following the regulations. So it's the, gov- the government should be it should have been watching out for all of you guys. You have this incredible conversation going on in the NBA right now or in general about Chinese. We don't even have to talk about Russians in our elections. We can talk about China's influence right now through corporations, China censoring actively censoring corporations and American corporate um, culture and policy and speech, be it the NBA, be it Marriott, be it Apple, be it Facebook, because so it's another government playing out and and pushing at for a role where ours has really abdicated its responsibility. Like, you know, even with technology, even with the Internet, even with artificial intelligence, there is a role for government regulation, for someone to come in and look out for the everyman and woman, because it's never going to be all good. It's never going to be Facebook is going to connect the world. I'm sure nothing bad will happen. <laughs> like with regards to even with regards to free speech and the the dissemination of knowledge and information, we have to be careful. And that's what we're seeing. You know, you're, we're seeing things crumble in this super optimistic idea about what Facebook and Twitter were going to be able to do really fall apart. A key takeaway for me with everything you just said is that we have to be willing to have fewer things and pay more for the things that are valuable to us. Because so much of the bad information on social media has been created by the way that you gain success on social media. And when I think of if if I accept that Facebook and Twitter are just providing space and they're not creating content, then I want to pay a premium for space where people are not just trying to be seen by the most folks, but they're trying to say something that is important and that has been vetted. And that is is clear and true. And I feel like that's just a reckoning that we're going to have to have in terms of paying for content again, paying for music, paying for books, paying for your news. You know, we just can't continue relying on getting big enough so that all that exposure leads to advertisers being able to help people keep making stuff. It just is not working. And when we get to a place where we say, well, it's so valuable to have Donald Trump tweeting to Twitter, 
that will say, even if he is actually threatening people from a position of tremendous and unparalleled power, we're going to call that newsworthy and keep it up and allow people to keep sharing it because that's that's just good for the room, right? That keeps the room running, keeps the lights on. That's just unacceptable to me in this democracy. And and I've really got to give some thought to that. I mean, I think you and I, Sarah, really have to give some thought to what do we do when social media has value to us and we see some good in it, but the places that we're able to get that value and that good are behaving in ways that I just I think are unethical. I mean, I don't understand why it's not so easy to flip that argument about Donald Trump on Twitter. Donald Trump belongs on Twitter because he's so powerful. Why isn't it just as easy to say Donald Trump doesn't need Twitter because he's so powerful? <laughs> I don't understand why one thing automatically leads to the other. From whose perspective? When Twitter says basically he's the president because he has such extraordinarily extraordinary power and influence, we basically have to give him have to keep him on Twitter, have to allow him to stay on Twitter, no matter whether he's threatening somebody or being racist or whatever. When I don't understand, I feel like it's just as easy to argue, hey, we're just Twitter. He's the president. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need a Twitter profile. We owe him no obligation due to your social responsibility because he is so powerful and he has any number of other avenues to get his message out. Oh, I guess that I'm viewing it more cynically because I don't hear that as the argument. I see that as the rationalization for Twitter is ultimately better off because with the president being a constant content creator on there, he attracts so many users. Oh, no. Yeah, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I think it's just very difficult. I think that we 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 want, particularly when people start throwing around the term free speech, we want there to be this very um, absolute, pure approach. But, and maybe perhaps there was an absolute pure approach available when the internet was just you know, a million chat boards, but it really never was just a million. Somebody was hosting them. Somebody was paying for them. And now lots of people are making lots of money around what you were just talking about, the the audience and the influence created by allowing, quote unquote, free speech, political speech to to build these audiences, to allow them to mine our data, to allow them to advertise to us, to allow us to participate in this quote, you know, this free content. You know, there's just a lot of threads in there. And to pretend as if, as they are trying to do, I think with these incredibly short-sighted policies regarding political ads to say, we're just a platform, um, we're not we're not a content producer. We're not fact checkers, even though they, they have fact checkers now. So they are they are acknowledging to a certain extent that they, they're the content is to be created for their platform is just, you know, it's fascinating. It's not like TV shows what TV channels would even allow this. It's not like TV channels are like, yeah, sure, throw up whatever. I mean, they allow tack ads and they do allow arguably the manipulation of your own record and your opponent's record. But, you know, knowingly false information, there's even a line for radio and TV that they seem willing to ignore. I just see these platforms as totally different than the question of free speech as we understand it under the First Amendment. Because these are private entities. These policies are their policies. They can create these policies to say whatever they want to. Acknowledging that they have a role as disseminators of news now is... One, a little bit late, but two, purposefully naive 
in my mind, a conversation we need to have as a country about free speech is that we have a right for the government not to restrict what we say. But that is different than a right to be heard by whomever we want to in whatever forum. It would be very easy for Google or Facebook to say, you know what, our users are just tired of politics. Um, so we aren't going to give Twitter accounts to people who meet certain criteria. They could do that. There's nothing illegal about that. Unless it became discriminatory under laws that protect specific classes of people. And I don't think politicians are a protected class of people, you know. I don't know how that would get analyzed legally, but I don't think that would be problematic. I just think we need to unhook the idea of free speech from saying things that are not true in places where you get the biggest audience imaginable spending the least amount of money to amplify that message. And the more we conflate free speech as we understand it under the First Amendment with these social media platforms, the more confused the argument gets. The truth is Twitter is a host. Facebook is a host. And hosts are allowed to exclude people from their spaces. That's part of the point of having any kind of space. You can keep certain things in and you can keep certain things out. But see, I don't think they're just a host. I think that they also are... are content producers in a unique way. And I think their argument is when I start excluding people, then I become a content producer. Then I am no longer a host who's just who's just building the stage. Then I'm becoming a producer who's deciding who gets on the stage. And that's what they're uncomfortable with. Yeah. But I mean, they already to your point, I think I think we agree about this. The, the way that they're influencing what gets on the stage is by how they choose to distribute what all is being put there, right? What they choose to show us from the stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even if you're allowing anybody on the stage, time is finite. Attention is finite. Every user's attention is finite. And so you're deciding who, so you are actually making decisions, even if you're not, quote unquote, kicking people off the stage. And they've made those decisions understanding That what gets the attention is the outrageous, the inflammatory, Mm -hmm. the untrue, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think they're acting like they don't have any agency. They have all the agency here. There's absolutely nothing about the First Amendment that narrows the agency of Twitter and Facebook to provide content free of disinformation. So in summary, Facebook and Twitter do better doing a bad job. Yeah, try harder. Be best. Beth, what's on your mind outside of politics this week? Don't be mad, but it's Christmas. Okay. Ha! You're going to get so many emails. It's only October 22nd. Listen, when I look at the calendar, we're here. And... You and I don't have a whole lot of time left at home between now and Christmas. And so I am deep into my commitment to doing enough Christmas ahead of time that I can actually enjoy Christmas. So I've got my spreadsheet going. I've started buying gifts. I'm going to start wrapping later this week. Again, do not be mad at me. I'm so excited because I've been on the hunt for a good nativity for a long time. I have strong feelings about nativities and the 
crazy way some of them portray the people involved in Christ's birth. Just I've got I've got opinions about them, and I have finally found one that I am absolutely in love with. This is not an ad. I bought this with my own money, and I absolutely love it. Um, Sarah Dixon, being Sarah Dixon, um, we'll put a link in the show notes to her website. Is a graphic designer. I love everything she makes. I love her newsletter. It comes just the right amount of time. She usually includes a coloring sheet with it, which I think is delightful. And in her last newsletter, she showed her nativity, which is a wooden, um, it's like wooden cutouts. And there are verses associated with each of the characters in the scene, like burned onto those characters. It's gorgeous. And so I've got my nativity. I've got my gift sheet going. We've done our schedule with my family. So we know where we're going on what dates. And I feel very comforted by my Christmas pre-planning. I love it. I mean, I do believe in Christmas pre-planning. Very much so. I have a friend, Jessica, who basically plans on the 25th of every month for like the six months before Christmas. So like the 25th of, you know, August, September, whatever. That's like her day. So she's like, okay, what can I get done? What do I need to think about? What do I need to plan? It's a very, very smart strategy. So um, I'm thinking about my new haircut. For anyone who does not follow us on social media, I cut off all my hair. I'd been thinking about it forever. I'd been fretting about it with my um, Paducah beautician who basically has to put up with me. So every time I seemed unsure, she was like, be cool. We don't have to do it right now. But we went to D.C. And longtime listener in front of the pod, Michael, or Michael and the Diamonds, if you're on Instagram, just, you know, supported me and gave me the most amazing short haircut. I feel like a new person. A new haircut changes everything. It really does look fabulous. And I agree with you. I think a haircut just can give you so much lift. People in that industry yes. do huge, do hugely therapeutic work for people. Yes. I'm just getting closer to 40. I've had the hair that I had for a very long time. I was ready for a change. I'm clearly not going to dye my hair. I'm not getting rid of the bangs because I love them. And so my options were kind of limited. I'd been wanting this sort of bob look for a while. Um, I feel like it's like a little more sophisticated, a little more fun than what I had before. I'm just I just love it. I feel like a new person. And I needed that because I'm about over my cold and I needed some sort of like spiritual shove out of this terrible week-long sickness. And I think it did. Like, I even feel I even feel physically better. I'm telling you, a haircut. Haircut changes everything. <laughs> you guys, we sat down uh, to eat right before our show in D.C. And we were in this room that had a mirror on one side. And I sat with my back to the mirror. And Sarah looks at me and says, I just want to be real with you. I'm glad that you sat there so I can sit here and look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was like narcissus. I could not stop looking at my new hair. I could not. Still can't. I'm not even trying to lie. Well, it does look great. Michael is very talented and was very generous with both of us in giving us lots of attention and advice and instruction. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, everyone who came out to see us in D.C. Thank you, especially to our team of folks. Nicole, Samantha, lots of other people who helped us get the venue in D.C. and make everything possible. And Susan Page, who was a fantastic guest. So good. She's the best guest, man. She's She's so good. good. She's got all the stories and they're so good. (laughs) But so do get your tickets for Dallas if you haven't been able to come to the Nuance Nation tour yet. I think it will be well worth your time. We will be back here on Friday with five things you need to know about the federal budget. Because Congress has other work to do right now. 
and it's getting to be crunch time on funding the government. So we're going to tell you what you need to know about that between now and then. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.